need a little help here. Anyone ever read the book uh, David Copperfield by Charles Dickens? Is that familiar to anybody? I'm struggling to remember a couple of names out of the book. Uh, there's some of the most famous characters in all of literature out of David Copperfield. So there's uh, Mr. Micawber. Everything always goes contrary with him. Nothing is ever his fault. Everything is the result of, of poor luck and bad circumstance. There is, of course, David Copperfield, who at the beginning of the book is a, a young boy. As a matter of fact, the book starts with his birth, and then it's, it's sort of a fictional biography. Some people say that actually David Copperfield looks a little bit like Charles Dickens. Maybe it's semi-autobiographical. There is Agnes Wickfield. Hers is the name that I couldn't remember. Uh, David, after a little while, uh, is rescued by his grandmother out of a terrible home situation, and she sends him uh, to live with the Wickfields, and there he becomes childhood friends with Agnes. They're about the same age, and they develop this wonderful friendship. Eventually, uh, David meets Dora Spenlow. Dora Spenlow. Dora is the woman that David eventually marries. And Dora is this wonderful character. She is uh, childlike in a number of ways in that she has lots of delight in life, but not always a lot of wisdom and sense. And you get a feel after David and Dora have been uh, married for a little while that Dora was not a good match for David. As wonderful as Dora was, she just wasn't a good match for David. Well, because the book is fiction, Charles Dickens felt perfectly free to kill off Dora. <laughs> Who was David's good match? Well, all throughout the story, David has a faithful friend who loves him and cares for him and provides for him and points him in the right direction when he wants to go in the wrong direction. And of course, who secretly loves him as well. And that's Agnes. Agnes, the friend of his boyhood. And uh, it's fascinating how David spends all of his life with Agnes, and he knows that there's something wonderful about her, but he never quite gets it until the end. I'm ruining the end for you, by the way. <laughs> he never quite gets it until he is about to lose everything because of Uriah Heep, another character in the book. And he recognizes that Agnes was truly the love of his life. And all of those things that he had always appreciated and respected about her, now he comes to understand how wonderful they are, and he falls deeply, deeply in love with her. I tell this story this morning, not just because David Copperfield is one of my very favorite stories, although I'll warn you, if you go to read it or maybe listen to the audiobook, there is a lot of difficult stuff. It is pretty sad for a long time before it finally seems to start to resolve. But it's one of my very favorite stories. And as I was thinking about God's glory this morning, I, I thought of, of I, I thought, what, what is God's glory? 
How do we communicate that? How do we talk about that? Because as Christians, the, the chief end of our lives, the purpose for which we were made, according to the wisdom of the church that has come before us, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And what we're really meant to enjoy is his glory. But I think for most of us, that idea of enjoying God's glory feels a bit hard to understand. It feels a bit strange. Like, okay, what even is God's glory? I had a conversation with a a number of folks over the past several months, and, and we've been talking a little bit about glory. This came up, I think, several times in our baptism class for the folks who were there. And uh, when we were taking a look at, at glory, there is this sense of, well, in, in the Bible, when people see God's glory, they see light. Right? It, God dwells in unapproachable light. And, and if you go to the very end of the Bible, when the new Jerusalem descends out of heaven to earth, it says you no longer need a sun because God dwells in the middle of his people and he will be their light. Now, if we, if we take that sort of baldly, literally, it sounds like God is a divine light bulb, doesn't it? He glows in the dark. But I don't think that's really what the Bible is pointing us to. See, the Bible is not trying to guarantee to us that someday you'll never live in the dark again because God glows. The Bible is trying to communicate something about God that is almost ineffable. Right? It's, there's a reason why we have a hard time picturing God's glory, understanding God's glory. And it's because it passes our understanding. There is this scene in the book of Exodus where you know, Moses, he's, he's about to receive the Ten Commandments, and God says, you know, Moses, what do you want from me? And Moses says, God, show me your glory. And God says, I will cause my glory to pass by you but I will shelter you with my hand because no one can see my glory and live. Let's be clear. When God says no one can see my glory and live, he wasn't threatening Moses. I think sometimes that's the way we feel and partly it's you know, because we're ultimately spoiled children who think we should have anything that we want. But I think what God is really telling Moses is that experience would be so overwhelming for you You can't take it. You would die. You know, especially as we get a little bit older, we have to be careful about the activities that we engage in, don't we? So I go swimming three times a week. I made it four times this week, and I'm very proud of myself. Uh, But I I go swimming, and I have this smartwatch, right? And it's got a fitness tracker, and it tells me where my heart rate is. And I can swim so hard that I can send my heart rate up to 160, 170, even a little bit higher. But that's not good for me. We have a a max heart rate. And if we go above it, we're risking damage to our hearts and to our bodies. If I exercise too hard, you know, I can overwhelm my heart. It can be true not just of physical activity. It can be true of stress as well, can't it? Stress, it's, it's not a tangible thing. I can't, like, touch my stress. But if I get really stressed out, I can send my blood pressure up, can't I? 
So much so that, again, I can damage my heart. There are certain experiences in life that if we go through them to the full, they'll literally kill us. You know, this is, I love saying this. Did you know that the Ironman triathlon is really not healthy for you? Your body is not meant to work that hard for that long a period of time. Did you know, uh, so in hikers, when they go and they do like the, the Appalachian Trail or the John Muir Trail or something like that, and they're out hiking for like a month, and they, they just got their backpacks, and you know, it, when, when you just got food in your backpack, you're not packing all the healthiest food you can find. You're finding the lightest, most calorie-dense food that you can find. And I read a study that talked about how people who do these long backpacks, eating that food are in worse health at the end than they were at the beginning. And isn't that strange? Because we think I'm just out walking and exercising every day. And yet the experience itself is actually not healthy for us. Why would that be true in these different places and in our physical lives? And yet spiritually, that could never be true. Come on, God, give me your glory. I can take it. Why are you holding out? Why are you trying to tell me I can't just see your glory in that sort of way? Let me tell you something. It's a good thing that God is so glorious that we cannot directly receive his glory. Because that's a godly sort of God, isn't it? That is a big enough God for the world that we find ourselves in. If you take a look at uh, the ancient forms of paganism, uh, you know, the Greek and, and Roman mythologies and so on. And you, you get to the gods, right? There's, there's Zeus and there's uh, Apollo. I'm already, I think I'm already mixing the Greek and Roman pantheons together, but that's okay because that's the same thing that they did. You know, there's Jupiter. He's the same as Zeus in the Roman pantheon. And if you listen to the myths, if you listen to the stories, you know what you'll find? These are just very powerful human beings. These are just very powerful human beings. They, they get angry, they get jealous, they lust, they rape, they kill, all to satisfy their own desires, good or evil. See, we don't need a God in our image, do we? We need a God who is big enough that if we were to take in his glory, it would probably kill us. That's good news even if it's not always easy news. But something strange happens at Christmas. Something strange happens at Christmas. Did you pick it up in John 1, verse 14 there? This is probably one of the single most important verses in the whole of the Bible, by the way. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This is the first half. Let me just, I can't just skip by this without unpacking a little bit at least. God himself, remember we've all throughout this passage, we've been talking about this, this being, this entity, the word. At the very beginning, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And now this word who is God takes on human flesh and lives our life. What? better recommendation could we have of our physical life than that God himself is willing to take it on? 
Are we ever tempted to believe, you know, someday I just want a good spiritual life. I'm going to shed this body and everything will be great. But you know what? Jesus took on your body. God himself took on your body. In Genesis 1, remember God created human beings and he, he gave them flesh. He gave them material bodies. And what did he say? It was good. Don't throw away your body. It is a gift from God. It's good. And when Jesus himself, when the word of God took on human flesh, he said, yes, human flesh is still good. Now, he wasn't saying human beings are good all the time. He wasn't saying human beings are not corrupt. But he was saying the way that I made you continues to be worthy continues to be good. The word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. And then the second half of that, verse 14, we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Uh, it's fascinating. There's so much happening in this verse and I, I'm going to try and, you know, summarize it as best as I can. But here's what we need to know, first of all. What kind of, whose glory have we seen? The glory of the one and only Son. That word translates a Greek word, uh, monogenes. Now, I don't expect you to remember the name of that Greek word. But it's translated, it's been translated in the past as only begotten Son. Because it comes from two words in Greek. Mono, you know what that means. Only, right? Monochrome, one Chrome, color, I don't know. <laughs> Monosyllabic, one syllable, right? Mono, one, alone, only. Then genes comes from the Greek word genao, which means to beget, to give birth to, to cause to exist. So that's where we get only begotten from. The problem is that in ancient Greek, the, the word had a slightly different nuance. Instead of saying, you are uh, the only begotten son, as in the one who came into being through, through birth, and that's the important thing, what they're really saying is, you are the only one of your kind. We have seen the glory of the word who is the only one of his kind. Who, if we go back to the beginning of this passage, is also not only with God, but God himself. Divine. God in every way, just like the Father is. We actually have in Jesus Christ the fullness of deity descended to earth and now having a human body and a human nature as well. What does that have to do with glory? Well, when Moses said, God, show me your glory, and God said, you can't handle my glory. He had in mind a day when he would send Jesus Christ, he would send his only son into our world who would be the lens through which we could finally see God's glory. What do you love about Jesus? If you love anything about him, what do you love? I know uh, one of the things that's easy to love about Jesus is his unbelievable acceptance of people. 
Who did Jesus eat with? Do you remember? Tax collectors, sinners. Remember uh, at, at one point a, a woman came in and, you know, she, she uh, anointed Jesus' feet. And the religious leader said, if Jesus knew who this was, he would never let her touch him. And Jesus said, I came for people like this. His radical acceptance of people. It never stopped him from telling the truth to people. That's one of the things I love about Jesus most of all, is he always tells me the truth even when I didn't ask for it. Because he knows I need to hear it sometimes especially when I would never ask for it. He's a radical truth teller. And how are we going to become transformed people unless someone is willing to tell us the whole truth? And isn't that the goal? I mean, aren't we trying to become better people all the time? Not because we're going to earn something before God by it, because it's better to be a better person. We know this. I don't think there's anyone in the world who wakes up and says, you know, you know what I'd like to be this morning? I'd like to be meaner. I'd like to be more of a liar. I'd like to be less kind and understanding. C.S. Lewis uh, said in one of his books, I think it's mere Christianity, but I could be wrong. No one wants to... Uh, get a bad thing for the sake of its badness. Actually, no one really wants bad things at all. What we really want are good things, and we just have bad ways of going about it. Even, even the worst people in human history, they weren't like, I love pain, and so I'm going to you know, commit genocide because that will cause pain. Those people are saying something along the lines of, I am hurting, and I think I will feel better if everyone else hurts too. They want to feel better. I believe that these people are legitimately holding our nation or our country back, so I can do whatever I want to them. I'm trying to get a better country, and what can I justify in the meantime? No one wants to actually become worse. We all want to become better somehow. And Jesus is the only one who never pulls any punches. There was never a moment where Jesus said, oh, no, you're not really a sinner. Oh, no, you're not really under the penalty of death. Who would say such a mean thing to you? We can't do that, can we? I mean, if we do do that, it's because we come across people we don't like and want to hurt because we think that'll make us feel better. Yeah, you're a sinner. Let me tell you about how bad your sin is because you really ticked me off this morning. We don't go up to people that we feel a deep affection for and easily tell them the truth, do we? We try and sugarcoat. Oh, no. No, you don't look fat in that dress, right? Men. Or ladies, oh yes, you're very strong. Right? Trying to find nice ways to deliver bad news. But man, Jesus knows how to do it. Take the Sermon on the Mount. 
Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Do you know what he didn't say? Blessed are you meek people, you know, who are willing to let other people uh, have their way for the sake of peace or, or whatever that reason is, who think less of yourselves than you do the people around you because all of your desires will be satisfied today. Is that what he says? No. Jesus knows. He knows that meek people don't end up with the best stuff in this world. But he says, you know what? One day the world will be all yours. One day, at the right time, meekness wins, is what he's saying. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Do you know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, blessed are you who mourn, because, you know, you really don't need to be sad. How often do we tell each other that when people are mourning? I I remember once I was sitting with somebody, uh, and they had just revealed some deep pain or hurt in their life. And someone came up to him and said, don't worry, God's just going to turn that to something good. You ever, you ever said that? Or have you ever uh, uh, had someone say that to you? Does it fix your problem? You're like, but it hurts now. But it stinks now. God may be doing something great about it, but that doesn't change the fact that this is hard. And that's what Jesus says. He says, blessed are those who mourn. We're not going to skip the mourning, he says. But we will comfort you. You know what the most important thing, the most meaningful thing you can do when someone is mourning? There are no magic words. There's not a magic hug. There's not a magic gift. But if you give the gift of your presence and your care, even if all you've got is sitting there silently wishing you could make it better, you will bless the people who mourn. And at the right time, they'll get comfort out of it. Jesus always Tells the truth. What are the things that you love about Jesus? Sometimes, yeah, we can love the wrong things. Sometimes we can invent things about Jesus to love. Oh, Jesus never got angry. Or my favorite, of course, away in a manger, away in a manger, no crib for a bed. Uh, the little Lord, I think I'm getting it out of order here, but you remember the line, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. Sometimes we make stuff up about Jesus to fit our picture of him. But when we actually see Jesus as he truly is, we see the glory of God mediated to us through the lens of Jesus' humanity. In verse 18 here in in chapter 1, he goes on. He says, yeah, we have seen the glory of God in the incarnation, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. In verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. By the way, folks, this is why you can't reject Jesus and still make your way to God. This is why Jesus is the only way and the truth and the life. Because there is nowhere, no place, nothing, and no one on earth who reveals God more clearly than Jesus does. 
And if we reject God's clearest revelation of himself to us, how can we ever possibly say that we know even the first thing about God himself? The only way to God is through Jesus Christ, the Son, because we can't see God on our own. And his fullest revelation comes to us through the Lord Jesus. And through every moment of the Lord Jesus' life, even through his birth. Like Willie was saying, who are the first people to greet Jesus? Was it the powerful and the influential? No, he was celebrated by shepherds. And as Willie pointed out, but I'm glad that he didn't demonstrate for us this morning, stinky shepherds. <laughs> they weren't the first people you would have invited, but they were the first people that God invited. He sent his angelic choir to the shepherds in the field and said, come and see that's what God's glory looks like. He doesn't have need of recognition by the, the famous and the wealthy and the powerful. How easy it is for us to want that recognition. When we think of man, who, who do we want to get to know Jesus today? Well, we should go after the, uh, the famous and the wealthy and the influential because you know, through them, more people will come to know. People will say, well, we care about who that person is and what they think and they do. If they know Jesus, then other people will want to know Jesus too. But that's not what God did. God, that's not what God's glory is like. God said, find me some shepherds. That's who I'm going to tell. That's who's invited. Because God doesn't have an ego. And he's not vain. And he's not hankering for the affirmation and the adoration of the whole world. Just those who are willing to hear. And all too often, riches and fame and influence and power are the very things that keep us from wanting to see God's glory. Because we start to recognize God's glory is going to eclipse my own. He won't fall down and worship me. I'll have to fall down and worship him. See, this is maybe the most wonderful gift of Christmas. It's finally, we see God clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. In everything that he said and everything that he did, we start to recognize that's who God is. He goes for the shepherds and not the kings. He tells the truth without ever destroying our hope. He loves farther than anyone would ever in their right mind love. Doesn't part of us think in some way that Jesus should have gotten off the cross and gave everyone what they deserved? Isn't that what we would have done at some point? Like, that's it. I said I would go as far as I could and this is as far as we're going. None of you deserve any of this. I want to close with First uh, John. So we're in the Gospel of John. If you're not super familiar with your Bible, you're in the right place because we will teach you about your Bible here. If you go almost to the very end of the book, to First John, 
Uh, I think the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John wrote 1 John. It was a circular letter. It was meant to be read uh, in the churches in uh, Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey, probably especially the southwestern portion of it. And this is how John begins his letter. He begins his gospel, you know, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. Listen to 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, the word, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. We proclaim what we have seen and heard. And then he goes on to describe God's glory. For John, meeting Jesus changed his life forever. Do you, do you get how that goes? That which we have seen with our eyes and touched with our hands and heard with our ears and seen with our eyes. Oh, wait, I already said that, but I'm so excited. We walked and lived with Jesus. And let me tell you all about him. That's what the glory of God does in God's people. And that's what God reveals to us. That's the gift God gives to us on Christmas Day. We finally, finally get to see God in a way we've never seen him before.